Thank you, Lord. All glory be to Christ. Father, we praise you and worship you this morning, Lord. You are glorious and wonderful, Father. Lord, you have been so gracious and merciful to us, your church, Lord. We just cry out to you, Lord, this morning. Father, we worship and praise you because you are worthy, Lord. And we just humble ourselves before you, Father, because we are not. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, for atonement for sins, Lord. We thank you for eternal life. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be upon us as we open your word this morning, Lord Jesus. We pray, pray that you would be glorified through this service, Father, and that your Holy Spirit would just awaken the word, Lord, that the word would be live in our hearts and in our minds as we read this together this morning. Let's pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we'll be picking up where we left off in Romans, starting with chapter 4, verse 1. The last time that we were in Romans, we covered the end of chapter 3, as Paul declares that the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, verse 21, we read, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now the concept of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ was not a new concept when Paul wrote this. And we see this declared in the beginning of chapter 4 in this morning's text. Salvation has not changed. It is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New. The distinction between the two would be that in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the Redeemer. And in the New Testament, we are looking backward at the Redeemer revealed to us as Jesus Christ. Paul references Abraham here as an example of one whose salvation was found in Christ and not in works, even before Christ's actual death, burial, and resurrection. Paul uses Abraham as the example here because he would have been someone who would have had a lot of clout with the Jewish people and someone who could unite the Jews and the Gentiles as being the father of the same faith. Paul is really trying to get his point across here to the Jews, specifically, that their works are filthy rags apart from a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham had faith in Christ, the Christ that was to come, and now we here today have faith in the Christ that did come, proclaimed to us through God's holy word. Now it's important to also keep in mind throughout this morning's text, that faith and works do go hand in hand. But it is not the works that save us, rather, works are the evidence of a saving faith. We do not do the work of the Lord here on earth as a way to earn our way into heaven, but instead it's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, of the changed heart, by the saving faith in Christ. 
later in the second half of this morning's text, we will see that this faith is not only for the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. Justification by faith in Christ is not something that is just reserved just for the Jews, but it's for everyone. So a few main points to take away from this morning's message. Number one, justification is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Number two, the means to that salvation are the same now as they were in the Old Testament. Just looks a little different. Number three, a saving faith in Jesus Christ will produce fruit in the form of works and a changed heart. And number four, a saving faith in Jesus Christ is not reserved just for the Jews, but is for all of God's elect. So as we proceed here this morning with chapter four, please keep these key points in mind as we dig into God's holy scripture. So with that introduction, would you please stand with me if you are able out of reverence for the reading of God's word, Romans 4, verses 1 through 12. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. For he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe, but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham, had while he was still uncircumcised. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So our primary example here this morning of justification by faith is Abraham. Paul quotes from Genesis 15, verse 6 here, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now Abraham was a very wealthy man. He had everything that he ever wanted or needed, except for one thing. Probably the most important thing to him at the time, he had no offspring. Abraham was in his mid-80s when God promised him that he will have an heir and that his offspring would be numerous. Abraham was 99 years old when God made his covenant with him that he would make him the father of many nations. 99, that's, that's pretty old to just be starting a family. But Abraham had faith. He believed his promise to be true. 
And of course, there were moments of doubt. He actually laughed to himself when God told him that his 100-year-old wife would bear him a son. Abraham was not perfect. We all have moments of doubt. But despite the moments of doubt, all in all, Abraham had faith in God. And it was this faith that justified his faith in God and in God's promise of a Messiah that would bring salvation. But having faith isn't just sitting around and believing with no action. Now we have to be careful here. Salvation is by faith, not by works. But a true, verifiable faith will be proven through the actions that it produces. Abraham's faith here was proven through his actions. In the covenant God made with Abraham, God promised him that he would make him the father of many nations. But what was Abraham's side of this covenant? He was to be circumcised and to circumcise all his household. And notice Abraham didn't drag his feet here. He wasn't a procrastinator. Genesis 17.23 says, So Abraham took his son Ishmael, and those born in his household or purchased, every male among the members of Abraham's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God had said to him. That very day. He didn't waste any time. We as believers should be a people of action. Our salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ, and that faith should have action, should have movement behind it. There should be wind in our sails. What can we do, brothers and sisters, as a church to put our faith into action? What can we do on a personal level, in our own lives, in our homes, to put our faith into motion? I think there's, there is a danger in becoming so focused on salvation by faith alone that we forget to look for the evidence of it, for the fruit of that saving faith. Now in a moment here, I'm going to turn, turn to James chapter 2, verse 14. And I know at first glance it's going to seem here we're contradicting Paul's point this morning in Romans 4, but if you'll hang in there with me, you'll see that it all ties together. I think it's really important to see both sides of the perspective here. So James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, if one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith, faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's take a step back for a moment here. Maybe some of you are a bit confused. I know I was first when I started working through this. Now, Paul is telling us here in Romans 4 this morning that salvation is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But now James here is telling us that faith without works is dead. And this may seem contradictory at first, but let's look a little deeper into the context. So James starts this section of Scripture by asking a question. What good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no works? Can such a faith save him? Now, is James refuting Paul here this morning and claiming that it is the works that justify us rather than our faith? Or is James saying that the means to salvation is both a combination of faith and works? Well, there's a couple things we can know for certain this morning. Both the book of Romans and the book of James are the infallible word of God. And we also know that God does not lie or speak with a forked tongue. So how can we reconcile this? Well, I would argue that James is not proclaiming here that faith plus works equals salvation, but rather he's asking What kind of faith do you have? There are many different kinds of faith. Not all faith is the same. The pagans at the time these books were written had faith in all different types of so-called gods. We see that today in our culture. People put their faith in all kinds of strange things. You can have a faith in something without it being something you put your whole life and identity into. For example, I have faith in a chair's ability to hold me up if I were to sit in it. I have faith in our government. That was supposed to be a joke. (laughs) The demons believe in God and shudder. There are different kinds of faith. But there is only one true saving faith. One faith that can save us from death and grant us eternal life. And that faith is in the one true God and his son Jesus Christ that died, was buried, and was resurrected, who bore our sins and took the punishment that we deserved, who showed us grace and mercy even though we didn't deserve it, who is seated at the right hand of the Father and is interceding for us. And that saving faith in Jesus Christ, it will bear fruit. And I think that's James's point here. If you have that saving faith that Paul is describing, a true faith in Jesus Christ, then there will be evidence of that. There will be works as evidence of a changed heart. In Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven 
but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So not everyone who thinks they are born again are truly born again. Not everyone's faith is genuine. Jesus says here that not everyone who calls upon his name will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of his Father. Faith, a true saving faith, will have evidence of a changed heart. There will be action. And not everyone who has works will be saved. The works of the men described by Jesus here are worthless without that saving regenerative faith. And that verifiable faith was Abraham's faith in our text this morning. It was Abraham's faith in God and in the promised Messiah that saved him, not his actions. But it's important to note here that his faith did produce fruit. His faith was proven through the fruit of his obedience to God. So let's look again here at verse 3 this morning. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. So again, Paul's quoting from Genesis 15, 6 here. Before Abraham was called to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah, Abraham had a saving faith. Before that faith was put into action through his obedience to God, later we'll see the fruit of this faith, but it was there before then. His faith is later proven by his actions, but the works were not the prerequisite to salvation. They came later as a fruit, as evidence of that saving faith. Verse 4, Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Salvation is not something that can be earned. If it were our works that saved us, then God would owe us salvation if we had enough works to earn it. But it's the opposite. We don't deserve our salvation. We're sinners deserving of death. But God in his great mercy delivers us. So Paul isn't trying to say here that we should not have any works. He's not teaching us easy believism this morning. He's trying to establish that there aren't strings attached to our salvation. It's not something we're going to earn. It's a free gift. And when we receive that gift, God will change us from the inside out. He will sanctify us and transform us into the image of his Son. And the fruit of that transformation will be evident. Before I was saved, I didn't have a desire to serve God. I had a laundry list of problems and sin in my life. I didn't earn my way to a saving grace. I can't boast. 
There's nothing I can do to save myself. But I believe God when he says that he can transform the ungodly to righteous. Through Jesus Christ and the atonement for my sins, I can have faith. Paul next points to David here as another example of justification by faith in verse 6. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Now notice here David says, Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven. He's not referencing someone who's perfect, someone without sin. He's referencing a sinner whose sins have been forgiven. This is because we can't put one ounce of faith in our own righteousness. Remember the person Christ was warning us about earlier in Matthew? Lord, Lord, didn't we do many mighty works in your name and cast out demons in your name? When we stand before judgment, we stand before God's throne in judgment, we can't cling to a single ounce of our own righteousness. We can't point to anything that we did or anything we said. There wasn't some magical prayer we, that we can appeal to. When we stand before God in judgment, we plead Christ. It is in Christ's righteousness that we are justified, not ours. Any of the righteous deeds that we do in our lives are merely just an overflow of the Holy Spirit pouring out of us. And this is Paul's point this morning. It is our faith in Christ and it's Christ's righteousness that saves us, not our own. But if we truly are born again, if we have a saving faith, there will be fruit of that faith. There will be evidence of it in our lives through various ways. Works or good deeds. But these aren't the things that save us. So what can we as believers do to stay vigilant here this morning? Now we know that our salvation is by faith in Christ alone. But we also know that there should be some evidence of that faith in the form of fruit. As parents, are we watching for that fruit in our children? If we have children that are professing believers, are we holding them accountable to their actions? Now we had an excellent example of fruit last week in the form of baptism. For a parent and for the rest of us in the church, Seeing these new professing believers getting baptized, it's a sign of fruit. Something we can physically point to and say, yes, I see forward progress here. I see fruit. And it's also our duty to hold them accountable moving forward. As time passes on, if we notice less and less fruit and more areas of sin arising, it's our duty as parents and as the body of Christ 
to confront the issue and hold them accountable. Now, my wife and I were at a Justin Peters conference over at LifeSpring earlier this year, and he made a very valid point. He was talking about the importance of holding children and teenagers accountable to their profession of faith and being careful not to overassure them if they aren't showing any signs of fruit. He said that children do not receive a junior Holy Spirit. Now, I never really thought of it this way, but a lot of times we treat it like that, don't we? We tend to kind of give our kids a pass on a lot of things, just chalking it up to their age. But if our children are born again, if they truly have repented and received the Holy Spirit, they have the exact same Holy Spirit that we do. And sure, there will obviously be some differences in behaviors just based on maturity and stage of life and life lessons that we all have to go through. Everyone stumbles into sin occasionally, and that's, that's not what I'm talking about here. But a Holy Spirit will produce fruit in a person regardless of their age. If you have a child or a teenager that has made a profession of faith but never reads their Bible, if they claim to have repented but continue to live in sin, if they are consistently disobedient, I would caution you against just assuming that they are saved based off of one confession of faith. A true repentance, a true saving faith, will produce fruit. And it's our duty as parents and as the body of Christ to watch for this fruit in our children and in our congregation. Now I thought another wonderful example of fruit for our church in general last week was having the service in the park. Just openly, unashamedly, publicly worshiping our Lord and Savior. It was wonderful. It's a great testimony to the body of Christ. And I'd love to see us do that more often. But how about on a personal level? Are we looking for areas of fruit in our own lives? Are we finding the temptation to sin becoming easier and easier to resist as we mature? Are we desiring more and more to be in God's word? Are we desiring more and more to be in church and to fellowship with the saints? Do we desire to be serving the church and the body of Christ and not to be seen or receive accolades, but because we love the bride of Christ and have a servant heart? Are we giving with a generous heart to further the work of the kingdom? Husbands, are we consistently leading our families in devotions or at least making progress in this area? Are we taking responsibility to manage our household in a godly manner? As husbands, God has given us his children, our wives and our kids, to care for and lead on this earth. It's not primarily the pastor's job here. Are we being a good steward of our families? Are we loving our wives as Christ loved the church? Are we self-controlled, worthy of respect, 
sensible and in sound faith, love and endurance. Wives, are you nurturing your family? Are you reverent in your behavior? Are you not slanderers? Are you teaching your children what is good? Are you encouraging young women to love their husbands and to love their children? Are you pure, self-controlled, taking care of your home and in submission to your husband? Parents, are we showing grace and patience to our children? Are we as concerned about our children standing with Christ as we are their position on their sports team or what college they might go to? Children, are you honoring your father and mother? Are you obeying them and the Lord's commandments? Are you taking the initiative to spend time in prayer and in God's word on your own? Husbands and wives, are we treating each other with patience, love, respect, empathy? Are we laying our lives down for one another as Christ laid himself down for the church? Brothers and sisters, our time here on this earth is short. Feels like just yesterday I was in my mid-twenties and starting a family. I sometimes fear I have wasted half my life pursuing my own selfish desires. Church, the time to serve the kingdom is not after retirement. Time is now. If we are born again, there will be fruit. I don't know if any of you have any fruit trees. We used to have some apple trees at our last house. Every year the fruit yield varied a little bit depending on weather and other reasons. But overall, year by year, there was progress made. The tree would get a little larger and so would the fruit yield. And it wasn't always super noticeable, but if you take a step back and look over the years, you can see that generally as time passes, you see more fruit. And this is what we should expect to see in our own lives as believers. This is what we should desire to see. We shouldn't desire to be complacent. We have been blessed with the most precious gift, the gift of salvation. Blessed with a saving faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that gift should not be taken for granted. This saving faith that Paul is describing here this morning, this wonderful gift that cannot be bought, should be the most important thing in our lives. And I think sometimes we take for granted that that same saving faith that Abraham had as a Jew is offered to us freely as Gentiles. Praise be to God that gift was not just for the Jews, but for all of us. Let's take a look at verse 9 again this morning in the text. Verse 9. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. 
Now the purpose of verse 9 and 10 here is twofold. First, Paul is reiterating that this faith is not reserved just for the Jews, but also the Gentiles. But at the same time, Paul is also snuffing out any pride in circumcision that the Jews may have had. So for the Gentile reading this, he's assured that not only is this saving faith in Christ open to him, but he can also relate to Abraham as Abraham received this saving faith before he was circumcised as well. There wasn't a prerequisite that Abraham must first be circumcised and then this faith might become available to him. For the Jew reading this, it's clear that it was not the act of circumcision that saved Abraham. Rather, it was the opposite. So for a Jew that had placed all of their hopes and faith in their ability to keep the law and in their works, this turns their view upside down. It's no longer their actions that save them, rather a saving faith. Circumcision for Abraham was similar to what baptism is for us today. It isn't something that brings on salvation. It is the sign and seal of one with a saving faith. And we saw this last week at our baptism service. For those being baptized, it was not because they thought it was their means to salvation. It was because they had repented and came to a saving faith, and they're now taking that step of obedience and receiving that sign of salvation, which takes us to verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised so that, the righteousness, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham while he was still uncircumcised. So the circumcised Jew is justified by faith alone. The uncircumcised Gentile is justified the same way, by faith alone. We all follow in the same footsteps as Abraham did. We have the same faith in the same Christ. I'd like to read a comment from R.C. Sproul on this text. The sign of circumcision pointed beyond itself to the covenant promise that God had made with his people. God destroyed the world by flood, the waters receded, and Noah and his family emerged from the ark safely. Then God put his bow in the sky and promised Noah and his progeny that, they would never, that he would never again destroy the world by water. That is the promise. Another deluge will never wipe out the world. Every time it rains and the sun shines behind the raindrops, we see the bow in the sky, for God said that the bow is his sign. And every time he sees it, it is a reminder of his promise. Circumcision was a sign of the promise of justification by faith alone. And so is baptism. It does not confer what it signifies, 
which is the promise of God to all who believe. Both circumcision and baptism are just a sign of God's promise, the promise of justification, the promise of forgiveness of sins. And all of this is granted to us by faith alone. Now, when I was a young adult and I was wrestling with my faith, I went through this period of doubting my salvation. I had repented and confessed Christ. I had been baptized. I went to church and I read my Bible. But I just wasn't fully convinced that I was saved, that I was good enough, or that I wouldn't do something bad enough to lose my salvation. I would slip up and sin, and I would immediately need to stop whatever I was doing and find a place to, pr- to pray and repent. It, it got to the point I'd be driving down the road and someone would cut me off and I would mutter a swear word in my head and I would have to stop and pull over and pray and repent. So as a teenager and a new believer, you can imagine how many times a day this would happen and how maddening it got. The issue wasn't the amount of times that I sinned. It wasn't what deeds I was doing or how much time I was spending in the Word or in prayer. The issue was that I did not have an understanding of salvation by faith alone. You see, I grew up in an AG church and there was very little time spent on teaching such matters. I was more or less taught that your salvation rests on your works and your sin. I wasn't able to find peace in my salvation until God revealed the truth to me through his scripture. And that truth is that I'm helpless to save myself and it is only by his grace that I might be saved. And now that I understand and I can look back to my baptism and instead of seeing it as a work that is going to be one of the actions that gets me into heaven, I can see that it was just a sign and seal of the Holy Spirit, just physical evidence of a changed heart, of a saving faith in Christ. Titus 3.4 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. Heirs with the hope of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we are heirs here together this morning. We are heirs to the most wonderful inheritance, eternal life. An eternal life spent worshiping God Almighty and basking in his presence. For any of you here this morning that are not yet saved, 
that have not made that profession of faith, or maybe you have, but the fruit in your life is saying otherwise. This morning's message declares hope, salvation, and eternal life. And there's no strings attached. There's nothing you could have done or said that will disqualify you from this gift. Christ has already paid the price. He has paid the price for our sins that we might have eternal life. So don't wait another day to turn to him. Run to him while you still can. And embrace that saving faith. Embrace the Lord and his grace and mercy. Trust in the one true God and his promise of justification. Place your faith in his power to deliver you from your sin and grant you eternal life. I'd like to close this morning's message by reading from Psalm 33. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the lyre. Make music to him with a ten-stringed harp. Sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is trustworthy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the Lord's unfailing love. The heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap. He puts the depths into storehouses. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it became into, into being. He commanded and it came into existence. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen to be his own possession. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the heart of all of them. He considers all their works. A king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. But look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. We wait for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love rest on us, Lord for we put our hope in you. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, humble. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for your steadfast love and your mercy, Lord. We thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, Lord, that we might be forgiven of our sins. Father, we know we're not worthy and there's nothing we can do or say, Lord, that that's, that will, can redeem us, Father, but it is solely in your Son. 
Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon us, Lord, that you would transform our hearts, Father, that we wouldn't do things for the kingdom for selfish desires or as a means to gain something, Father, but that it would be an outpouring of a changed heart, Father. We pray that you would change the desires of our heart, Lord. Our time on this earth is so short. Father, I pray that you would help us to maximize that time here, Lord, to do your work and bless your people, Father, and proclaim your name to all nations. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.